unrequited love. He goes, see, these are some of the lyrics. It goes like this. Hello from the other side. I must have called a thousand times to tell you I'm sorry for everything I've done, but when I call, you never seem to be home. Hello, from the outside at least, I can say that I've tried to tell you I'm sorry for breaking your heart, but it don't matter. It clearly doesn't tear you apart anymore. Now, some people would say that uh, God could never sing a song like that. He's above such things. He, he doesn't really feel the pain. Yeah, God is so removed from us, so distant, that he could never sing this song. He could never say, you're breaking my heart, you're tearing me apart. But he does. Right here in this chapter, in verse 8 of Hosea chapter 11. Look at it there. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My, my heart, and literally this is what it says, my heart is churned up within me. That's literally what it says. All my compassion is aroused. Aristotle um, spoke of God as the great unmoved mover. Well, he was wrong. He was wrong. Hosea won't let us think of God like that. God is not the unmoved mover. He's a God who loves deeply and passionately. He's all churned up inside because of us. You asked for a loving God, says C.S. Lewis. He's written a book called The Problem of Pain. You asked for a loving God, and you've got one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, is in fact present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate. Not the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests but the consuming fire himself. The Lord that made the worlds, persistent as an artist's love for his work, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, and as jealous and inexorable and exacting as the love between a man and a woman. Now, both those images are here in Hosea, aren't they? The love of a man for a woman, we've seen that in the opening chapters. Hosea is told to go and love Gomer, even though she's been so unfaithful to him. Why? Because God wants us to know how churned up inside he is because of our unfaithfulness and our promiscuity, our sinful promiscuity, chasing after other gods. See, if Gomer was just a friend, if Gomer was just Hosea's friend, then he might sit up and talk to her about her troubles three nights in a row, until 2 a.m. in the morning, but what happens on, you know, the fourth night when the phone rings? You'd put on the answering machine, wouldn't you? <laughs> if they were just friends. Because, you see, her, her troubles are not your troubles. Her problems are not your problems. Her wounds are not your wounds. But if you're married to her, your heart is bound up with her so that her wounds become your wounds, her happiness, your happiness, her despair, your despair. And so God says to Hosea, go marry Gomer. She'll break your heart. And then you'll begin to understand how I feel for my people. Now, we've looked at that in those first three chapters. We won't revisit that now. Because here the image changes. You will have noticed that as, as the passage was read. No longer is it uh, the image of a, a husband's love for his wife, but now it's a father's love for his child. That's the theme of this chapter. 
Uh, Derek Kidner has got a great little commentary on, on Hosea. And he says, when we speak of God as Father, we may hesitate in case we read too much into the word. But our chief danger is in reading too little from it. So today, as we, as we look into the, the Father heart of God, I want, just, I want you to see that three things. That God's love for his children is tender, verses 1 to 4. But it's tough, verses 5 to 9. And it's triumphant, verses 10 and 11. Again, you notice at the end of the chapter, there's that positive note of hope, which we've noticed in all the other chapters we've looked at. So first of all, then, notice how, how tenderly God speaks to his, uh, his people there in verses 1 to 4. What's the first thing? I mean, we, we, we live on Mount Nelson. And uh, well, we've been there since 1993. Uh, we were away for five years. But during that whole time up there on Mount Nelson, I think at least three times we, we had a bushfire that came pretty close. One, the first time it happened, the fire came right up to, to our house, basically. We were on a bit of a ridge. And I think there were about 17 fire engines in the suburb uh, to try and uh, deal with that fire at that time. Scary. What, what happens, you know, when, when uh, some of you may have experienced that. It, it doesn't happen all the time in Tasmania, but it does happen. Uh, and what's the first thing you go for when, when a bushfire threatens your home? Uh, for me, it would be my sermon notes, probably. Uh, but for my wife, uh, it, it's the photograph album. Because <laughs> uh, now, um, keep, she's not very technological. She's a bit of a Luddite. She's not technologically uh, savvy. Uh, now, of course, you can upload all your photographs into the cloud. You don't have to worry about it anymore, but she doesn't know that. <laughs> she doesn't know how to do that anyway. And so the first thing she goes for is the photograph album, all those precious memories. And here is the big, scary God of the Bible. You see what he's doing in this chapter? He, he's thumbing through the family photograph album, isn't he? He's walking down memory lane. He's, he's reminiscing almost nostalgically about Israel, his son. See there in verse 1? When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Uh, Russell Moore is a Baptist minister in the States, and he and his wife uh, have written a book called Adopted for Life. They adopted two boys from an orphanage in, in Russia. He writes about it in, in the book. He says, my mind flashed back to the first time I ever saw those two boys. They were lying in excrement and vomit, covered in heat blisters and flies, in an, orphan, in an orphanage somewhere in a little mining community in Russia. And we loved them both at an intuitive and almost primal level from the very first second. The transformation of those two ex-orphans into the sons I see every day of my life running through my house with Lego toys and construction paper drawings motivates me to write this book. And here you see in these verses, God thinks back to the day when he came home with his son for the first time. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, where they were in slavery, when they were facing almost uh, genocide under the pharaohs, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, why Israel? Why does God call Israel his son? I mean, there were so many other messed up kids in the orphanage, weren't there? Why, is, why not Egypt? I mean, if you were going to that orphanage, if you were going around the world in those days trying to find a son, 
why not Egypt? I mean, Egypt straddling the great river Nile with its rolling history and its flamboyant dynasties, with its art and its wealth, you know, the envy of the civilized world. Why didn't God choose Egypt for his son? Why not Assyria, one of the great symbols of power in the ancient world? Or Phoenicia, a brilliant seafaring, trading nation. Why did God choose Israel? Well, the answer is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's not because they were bigger or better than the other nations. Listen to what it says. The Lord did not set his affection on the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh king of Egypt. See, there's your answer. If you've ever asked yourself, why does God love me? Well, he, he loved you because he loved you because he loved you. That's the answer. Don't look for the answer in yourself. You won't find it there. Why did God choose you? Out of all the people in the world to be his child, to adopt you into his family, it was because he loved you, because he loved you, because he loved you. It's pure grace. It's undeserved love. There is nothing in us to merit such love. Just like those poor messed up kids in that orphanage, that's you. That's me. And God set his affection upon us and adopted us into his family. And what do they do? Well, well look at verse 2. They throw it all back in his face, don't they? Do you see that there in verse 2? The more he loved them, the more they wanted to make up their own gods, like all the other nations around them. The, the more they were called, it says, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burnt incense to images. They reject God's love, like adolescents, ungrate, ungrateful adolescents, you know, who blame all their problems on their parents. They just want to be like everyone else. But the Moabites have so much more fun than we do. <laughs> Why can't we be like them? <laughs> Baal is not as old-fashioned as you are, God. The Ammonites, they get to stay up much later than we do. <laughs> the Canaanites have more pocket money than we do. Isn't that how we respond to God's love? Like petulant teenagers. We just want to be like our non-Christian friends. We hate being different. We just want what everybody else has got. And so we worship at their shrines. We worship at the temples of their gods. That night at the movies, that expensive meal at that posh restaurant, that footy match, nothing wrong with any of those things. But it's all so much more exciting to us, much more fun than gathering with God's people on the Lord's day to hear his word and to worship him. Isn't that right? So I can give church a miss anytime it's inconvenient or if the weather's a bit cold like it is tonight. <laughs> I can give church a miss. But I must have what my friends have. I don't want to miss out on that. And do you realize that, you know, that when, when we behave in that way, we're not just treading on God's toes. We're trampling on his heart. And, and so God looks back to the days when, when Israel learned to walk. Verse 3. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. Ephraim is a kind of pet name. I don't know if you've got a pet name for your kids, but God has a pet name for Israel, and it's Ephraim. 
I taught Ephraim to walk, he says, and taking them by the arms. When Israel were taking their first stumbling steps as a nation there in the wilderness, God was there for them. But they didn't realize it. When they fell over, I picked them up, dusted them down, wiped away the blood. It was I who healed them, God says. When Ephraim grazed his knee, I kissed it better. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love, verse 4. See, that's the spiritual equivalent of, uh, you know, the um, child harness that parents used to have. They're probably not allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's probably a really good idea to keep uh, your toddler from running out into the traffic or getting lost in a supermarket. God says, I held their hands. I strapped them into their car seats for their own safety. Have you ever tried doing that to a toddler? <laughs> it takes a long time. They don't know what's best for them. But I did that for Israel, God says. And, and do you remember mealtimes, if you're a parent with young children? Food everywhere except in their mouths. I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, God says, and, and I bent down to feed them. Such a familiar scene. Any family would recognize it. There's such, do you see, can't you see that there's such warmth and tenderness in these verses? This is how God wants to relate to his people. When Israel was a child, I loved him. But toddlers become teenagers, don't they? Toddlers uh, trample on your toes, but teenagers, believe me, trample on your heart. And now Ephraim is a child no longer. And like some scornful adolescent, Israel has forgotten or just doesn't want to know God anymore. So look at verse 5. They want to go back to Egypt. I don't know if you can see that in verse 5. The story is going full circle now, back to Egypt, where it all began. Out of Egypt I called my son, God says in verse 1. But now that same son wants to go back to Egypt. Do you see that there in verse 5? My, my, my wife is, um, we're both Welsh. Uh, my wife was born in the Rhondda Valley, which is a South Wales coal mining valley. Huge, uh, it was a huge coal mining uh, area of Wales. And she was brought up there in the Rhondda Valley, where it always rains. It rains, you think it rains here in Tassie. Yeah, it's nothing compared to what it's like in Wales. And uh, so every time she goes out, and even we have lived in Australia now for 28 years or so, every time she goes out, she still expects to get wet. You know, even when we lived in Queensland. <laughs> she, you know, so she has to bring a, some sort of waterproof device with her, just in case. And I find myself saying to her, you know, you can take a girl out of the Rhonda, but you can't take the Rhonda out of the girl. <laughs> and she gets very annoyed about that. <laughs> but that's how it was for Israel. Don't you see that? God has called his people out of Egypt, you see. He's called them out of Egypt, but Egypt is still in their hearts, and they keep wanting to go back there. My people, look at verse 7, my people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. See, this is so bang up to date, really, isn't it? Uh, isn't this how God views some of our historic denominations? Isn't, that why some, why some of, isn't this why some of the great Protestant denominations are in such decline? I was converted and brought up and called to ministry and started my ministry in what was known as the it's the Presbyterian Church of Wales. It's also known as the Calvinistic Methodist Church. It's got two names. 
because it had its beginnings in the great Methodist revival. And so it, only, you know, 300 years ago, it, it, the, the leaders of that denomination were people like George Whitfield and, and all the great Welsh Methodist preachers. It, it has a rich, rich heritage. It's, it was the main denomination in Wales. When I was ordained, uh, just shortly after I was ordained, they, they passed a resolution in the assembly, in the general assembly, inviting all the evangelicals to leave the denomination. <laughs> isn't that how God, isn't this so up to date? Isn't this what happens? You know, isn't this how God views some of our historic denominations and churches, which he has grown and nurtured? and looked after in their early years in the most astonishing way. And now they seem determined to turn from him. Isn't that the story of the Uniting Church? Sorry to name one denomination, but it's a classic example. More concerned about being politically correct than biblically faithful. Isn't that right? Even though they pay lip service to me, the church that I was brought up in, uh, they never referred to, to the, the, the Lord as, as, as the Savior or as Lord. It's always Almighty, the Almighty, the Almighty. You know, I, I'm, sorry, I'm getting on a bit of a hobby horse here, but I can smell liberalism when I, when, whenever, wherever I find it. And that's, that's just what you find in liberal churches. They can't, they can't bring themselves to call God a Savior. It's the Almighty. And then God says, even though they call me the Almighty, God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. Maybe that's you too. You're on the run from God. You have a history with him. In your earlier days, you've got fond memories of times when God seemed so very close to you. When he picked you up, dried your tears, and carried you in his arms. Maybe you can say with the hymn writer, what peaceful hours I once enjoyed. How sweet their memory still, but, but, they have left an aching void the world can never fill. Is that where you are spiritually this afternoon? God has called you out of the world. He's nurtured you, he's grown you, he's cared for you, but the world is still there in your heart and you want to go back. Is that you? Is that where you are spiritually? If it is, then read on. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That's the second thing I want you to see. God's love is for his children. Yes, it's tender. It's, it's a tender love. God loves his children tenderly, but it's not only tender, it's tough. That he brings into his family. It's a holy love. It's a love that will not let us go. It's a love that will not leave us in our sin. So look at verse 8. These are the most amazing words, I think, in the whole chapter, in the whole of Scripture almost. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Now, Adma and Zeboim were, you may wonder what, what that's all about. They were two of the cities in the plain. You can see the map up there. Two of the five cities in the plain that were destroyed alongside Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what you deserve, God says. That's what you deserve. How can I, how can I do that to you? How can I make you like Zebaim and Adma? I remember what Billy Graham said when he was still alive. Uh, remember what he said famously, if God doesn't judge New York, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And that's true for London and for Sydney and for Hobart. We, we deserve nothing but his angry punishment for our sin and rebellion. And it's not that the Lord doesn't give us opportunity to repent and to turn around and to come back to him. Hosea comes 700 years after God had rescued them from Egypt. 700 years, that's a long time. That goes back to the... Uh, it's like if someone had wronged you back in, uh, in 1320, let's say, or 1321, and you wait until today for them to say sorry. It's a long time to wait, isn't it? 700 years. But God waits. Remember what Peter says, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But don't, don't try the patience of God. Because you see what it says in verse 6, a sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. See, this is... There's nothing sentimental about the love of God. You can't just take it for granted. You can't just take sort of false assurance that God, oh, God's a God of love, it'll be okay. In the end. No, no. He's, his love is, is it's tender, but it's tough. It's stern. This is a severe... It says that in their, their homes... See what it says? A, a sword will flash in their cities. It'll devour their false prophets, put an end to their plans. Their homes are going to be wrecked. Their future plans will be smashed. Yeah, God does that because he loves them. God does that. You wonder, why, why are these things happening in my life? These things that, that, things that I didn't expect would happen. Why, why is God allowing this to happen to me? I'm one of his children. Because he's a holy God and his, and his love for you is a, it's not only a tender love, it's a tough love. And he wants the best for you. God says that in verse 7, even though they call me God Most High. I will by no means exalt them. It, some of the commentaries suggest that uh, it, that the translation there it could actually mean even if they pray to Baal, because the Baals were the gods in the high places. That's what they were doing. Even if they they pray to Baal for help, it's not going to work. Baal won't. Lift a finger to help you. It's like going to the gym in the face of death. It's not going to change the final outcome. It's too little, too late. And the Assyrians are coming. And we know in 722 BC it, that it happened just as God said it would. The Assyrians swept down and destroyed them and carried them off into oblivion. Sin is sin and must be judged. And God will not sweep it under the carpet or pretend it doesn't matter. And that's even more so for us who are his children. And yet, judgment, the Bible says, is his strange work. Do you know, there's a funny little metaphor there in the, in the Bible. It's actually, when it talks about judgment being God's strange work, it, it's the, the picture there is of left-handedness. Just a picture. I'm right-handed. I can't do anything with my left hand. You may be ambidextrous. You may be able to use both hands. Uh, that, let's not stray out, out, of the, out of the illustration. The, the illustration is simply this, that God is very uncomfortable about judging people. He doesn't do it easily. It doesn't come naturally to him to, to judge people. He's, that's a left-handed thing as far as God is concerned. 
Judgment is his strange work. He's much more comfortable showing mercy than judging sinners. He's slow to anger and swift to show mercy, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so his heart goes out to us, his sinful, rebellious children. How can I give you up, he says. How can I hand you over? Now, do you see, here you can see right into the heart of God, can't you? Any parent with teenagers, teenagers will understand this. Do you, see, do you see the dilemma that's at the heart, in the heart of God? How can I, how can I give in to them? I can't give in to them. I am the Holy One. But how can I give them up? They're my children. How do I, do I give up on them? Do I let them just suffer the consequences of their own actions? Do I give up on them? Sometimes when, you know, if parents with really rebellious kids, they're, they're tempted to do that, just to give up on their kids. Is God going to do that? Do I give up on them? What's the alternative? Do I give in to them? Sometimes, you know, you have to think if you're a parent and your children are, you know, running, kicking over the traces, uh, maybe just for family peace and to keep, keep them in the, in, uh, at home, I, I give in. I, I, uh, what's God going to do with people like us? My heart is churned up within me, he says. All my compassion is aroused. What am I going to do? I will not carry out my fierce anger, he says. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. The Holy One among you. What happens when the Holy One comes among us? Well, we know, don't we? What happens when Jesus steps onto the pages of history? Remember what Jesus said when he came into this world? The Holy One amongst us. Do you remember what he said? He said, I haven't come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. How is that going to happen? Do I give in to them? Do I give up on them? How is the world going to be saved? This world that's running away from God and shaking its fist in his face. And how is the world? Not by sweeping our sin under the carpet and pretending it's not there, but by taking it upon himself. At the cross of Jesus, pardon is complete. Love and justice mingle. Truth and mercy meet. Though my sins condemn me, Jesus died instead. There is full forgiveness in the blood he shed. So God's love is tender and it's tough. There can be no cover-up and yet our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. God's love is tender and it's tough and ultimately it's triumphant. So you see how the chapter ends? It ends with a roar of triumph, doesn't it? Look at verse 10. They will follow the Lord, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children will come trembling. Now, when we lived in, when we lived in Brisbane, our local footy team was the Brisbane Lions. And, uh, and this is their song. We'll kick the winning score. You will hear our mighty roar. And you will if you live anywhere near the Gabba, as we did in Brisbane. Not very often, but you would hear it from time to time. <laughs> well... Well, the point here is this, that Jesus has kicked the winning score, hasn't he? And you will hear his mighty roar. 
He will see of the travail of his soul and he will be satisfied. He has kicked the winning score. You will hear his mighty roar. Can't you hear it right now? It's the sound of the gospel going out into the world. The lion roars and his children come trembling to him, it says. They come home from the far country like, like homing pigeons. Look what it says in verse 11. They'll come from Egypt trembling like sparrows, from Assyria fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. It's like a mass migration. It's one of the great spectacles of nature, isn't it? So God has planted within these migratory birds a homing instinct, and they, they fly hundreds and thousands of kilometers to find the best ecological conditions and habitats for feeding and breeding and raising their young. And that's what God does in us. When we savingly hear the gospel, he plants within us a desire to come home to God. The lion roars and we come trembling. H have you heard? You've heard lots of sermons. <laughs> but have you heard the lion roar? When, when I was a... Yeah, yeah, first, before I was married, actually, I was living uh, in ministry uh, for about 18 months and I had a, a, a colleague of mine and his family live with me in the in the manse on a very busy road. And I can remember on one occasion, one of his sons, he was just about a five-year-old, I think, uh, just wandered out of the house through the garden and onto this really busy road. It was on the main thoroughfares from London through to Wales. And uh, he was just about to run out into the road, and there was this huge, huge uh, lorry, yeah, this huge truck bearing down on him. And uh, I just at the last minute, I just caught sight of him, just about to step off the pavement into the path of this lorry, and I shouted, Andrew! <laughs> and instantly, he stopped. <laughs> there was an urgency in my call to him that made him stop. It, it pulled him up short. It saved his life, actually. Have you heard the gospel like that? Not, ho-hum, we've heard it all before. <laughs> yeah, Jesus died for our sins. <laughs> we know that, yeah. No, have you heard the lion roar? <laughs> Do you know what it is to be effectually called by God? through his word, and to come trembling to him. Have you heard the lion roar? Have you come trembling to the lion of the tribe of Judah? John Newton describes it like this in a letter that he wrote uh, to a certain aristocrat on the 5th of November, 1774. He said, we are his by every tie and right. He made us, he redeemed us, he reclaimed us from the hand of our enemies, and we are his by our own Voluntary surrender of ourselves. Yes, that's how you become a Christian. You voluntarily surrender yourself to him. But though we once slighted, despised, and opposed him, he made us willing in the day of his power. He knocked at the door of our hearts that, that we at least, I, he says, had barred and fastened against him for as much and as long as possible. But when he revealed his love, we could hold out no longer. That's it, isn't it? what the theologians call irresistible grace. Effectual calling. That's what, that's what Hosea is talking about here. The tender, tough, triumphant love of God in Christ. Even when we, we, we throw it back in his face and run away from him and try and go back into the world that he saved us from, his love will not let us go. I love what uh, Derek Kidner says about this. He says, the Bible never takes the warmth out of love, the fire out of anger, 
or the audacity out of grace. This is audacious grace, triumphant love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for loving us like that. We thank you that uh, we can surprisingly find there in the Old Testament such a powerful statement of your heart for sinners like us. And Lord, we pray indeed that when we're tempted to throw it back in your face, when we're tempted to wander from you, when we're tempted to go back into the world that you saved us from, when we are tempted to envy our non-Christian friends and just want what they got and not seriously take the Christian life, we pray, Lord, that you forgive us and that you draw us back to yourself with cords of love. Pray that you bring us back, O Lord, and fire us up with zeal for you and for your kingdom. And we ask it in Jesus' name.